Let's begin our day together by praying. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you once again for you and your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. We thank you for your magnificent plan, for your grace, for your love, for giving us Jesus when we are your enemies, that he would die on the cross for our sins and that you raise him from the dead. That whoever simply believes in Jesus Christ as our Savior is never going to perish but has eternal life already. And Father, this morning we ask the Holy Spirit would guide us to understand uh, fully the message that you've prepared this morning out of the Gospel of John. We ask, Father, that we would be um, have our hearts renewed by the message. We also ask, Father, that it would, it would cause us to grow more in love with your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We also pray this morning for the church, especially those who are being persecuted or suffering. We would ask and put it in your hands for your care and your, your support and power for them to endure what they're enduring. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning again, everybody. Uh, because this is the first Sunday of the month, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper together at the end of service today. At this time, I'd like you to please turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 30. Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 30. Title of today's message being, The Works of My Father. This morning, we're going to do what Jesus does here in his last great encounter with the Jews, who are, of course, the religious leaders, having, having seen their rejection of his message again and again and again. He is finally going to appeal to his works and his works alone as the works of his father, their God. So we're going to see that this morning, the works of my father. Again, John chapter 10, starting in verse 30, and I'll read the passage now. I and the father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him. And he eluded their grasp. In verse 30, the first verse of this morning's passage, Jesus declared that he and the Father were one. He had just finished describing how those who believe in him, his sheep, he will never, they will never be taken from his hands, the Lord Jesus Christ, and also from the Father, who is all-powerful as well. And at the end, he says, I and the Father are one. Now, in the context of this passage, when he says that he and the Father were one, he means the following. He means some specific things about their relationship. First, 
that they were one in the works that Jesus performed. Jesus only performed the works that his father gave him to do. He observed the father working, it says in chapter 5, and he worked likewise. So they were one in the works that Jesus performed. They were also one in knowledge. They're both omniscient, but in particular, they had they had the knowledge of who his sheep were and who his sheep were not. They were one in love, a mutual love, one for the other. And then finally, they were one in their guarantee of the eternal security of each and every believer. So in all these aspects, they were one. Now, we know from the point of view of the enlightenment of all the scriptures that he also was pointing to the fact that he and the father were one in essence. They're both God. But at this point, remember, he is trying to convince these unbelieving, hostile Jewish leaders to give a a hearing to the gospel. And so he is taking them where they are and pointing out information that they could absorb to understand that in some way or other, according to their way of seeing things, yes, Jesus and his Father in heaven, God, were one in, in these ways at least, okay, in his knowledge and love, guaranteeing eternal security, and the fact that they were together, and this is key for this morning's passage, in the works that Jesus performed. In other words, the works that Jesus performed are the works of God himself, Jesus said that his works testified to the fact that he was the Messiah. Now, he had told them this before, but over and over again, they refused to believe his words. This time, once again, when Jesus says something about the fact that he's the son of God, once again, these Jewish leaders react with great anger, hostility, murderous desires against him. So by now, at this point, Jesus conceded the fact and understood that they were never going to believe on the basis of his words alone. Now, they should have. His words have power. We've seen many other encounters Jesus had with people where merely by the things that he said, they came to believe in him as the Messiah and the Son of God. But these Jewish leaders refused to do that. And Jesus at this point understood that. They're never going to listen to what I have to say, and that would be the basis for them believing alone, alone. You know, Jesus had pointed to many witnesses, several witnesses earlier on. And, and, and as we look at this from the point of view of the Gospel of John, we start to understand that what's happening is that God the Father in his grace provides a set of witnesses. We're going to see them in a minute from chapter five, that he does, that even though it is word alone should suffice because of the frailty of man, because of the sinfulness of man, because of the, the hardness of heart. He gives them others witnesses as well to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. Now, they had already tried to kill him also several times. Each time they charged him with blasphemy. And that was the basis for them wanting to kill him, wanting to stone him. Now, the first time that that happened was back in chapter 5, when Jesus, for the first time, declared that God was his father. And it's very interesting, because there, his first appeal, back then, to his identity, was to his works also, his works. Let's look at John chapter 5, verse 19. John chapter 5, verse 19. 
Jesus had healed a lame man, lame for 38 years, but he had done it on the Sabbath. But most, but most hideously from the point of view of the leaders, he declared that God was his father. To them, that was blasphemous, and they wanted to kill him. But look at Jesus' response. Look at John chapter 5, verse 19. Therefore, Jesus answering was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. What is he saying? He's saying, observe my works and you will see if you have eyes to see and ears to hear that all the only works that I'm doing are works that the father has performed. And not only that, the works that the father has ordained him to perform. And just like his words were the words of God, his deeds also were the deeds of God. Right all the way back here in chapter five, he says that. Basically, what he's saying is the works that I do equal the works of my father. This was something that was they could observe whether or not they were believers in Christ yet or ever. They could certainly observe works and make the connection. Like, for example, healing a lame man and, and giving a man who was blind from birth his sight. If you went back and looked at what the Old Testament had to say about those things that only the Messiah will be able to perform or only God can do, then just by observing that, they should have made the connection. Well, we don't know who this guy is. We're very nervous about the fact that he's claiming to be the son of God. But it's undeniable that the things he's doing have to be things that, that, the, that God has ordained and empowered. So his, his appeal is to his works, even here. He did nothing on his own initiative his whole life. The only things he ever did, he did in obedience to the Father. But at this time in chapter 5, Jesus also appealed to other witnesses as well. He never based their, his appeal to believe in him solely on his words. Even though his words were the, had the power to do it, he also, as it were, supplemented them with, with several other witnesses. I'd like you to turn now, well, just go a few verses forward to John chapter 5, verse 33. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. In other words, he is, he is pointing to another witness, to John the Baptist. And he's saying that my testimony alone, okay, should convince you because it's from God. But I'm going to tell you something else. I'm going to point to the fact that John the Baptist... Whom, whom the people loved and that leaders could find nothing wrong with. And so the people understood him to be a prophet. He says, listen, if you don't want to listen to my words, go back to what John the Baptist said about me. And John the Baptist declared that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He said that Jesus is the Son of God. He said, if you don't believe me, believe John the Baptist. If you do, by that, on that basis, if you combine the two, my testimony, plus John the Baptist, you believe one or both, you will be saved on that basis alone. So, so, and, and this isn't the only one, okay? We're going to look at five different witnesses just here in John chapter 5, verses 33 to 47. 
The next one, so John the Baptist was the first one. The next one is the works of the Father. Look at verse 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. Why? For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. His words testified to who he was. John the Baptist testified to who he was. The very works that the Father has given him to accomplish, they testify about who he was and the truth that the Father had sent him. Okay, the, the next one is the Father himself. Look at verse 37. And the Father who sent me, he is testified of me. The Father himself. What is he saying? He's saying, now you have my words. You have the prophecies and the words of John the Baptist. You have the works that I've done that are from the Father. And you have the Father himself who has testified of him. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. In other words, the father has testified. And as a matter of fact, one of the ways that the father testified was through the words of Jesus because they were the words of the father. Not only that, but when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, the the father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. The Father, God himself, declared that Jesus is the Son of God. So we have words of Jesus, the words of John the Baptist, the works that Jesus performed that were ordained by the Father, the testimony of his Father himself, but we're not done. Jesus is going to provide two additional witnesses. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that what? Testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. He's saying that the the scriptures that they believed in, they said they did, the Old Testament scriptures now, testified about Jesus Christ. Remember, we did a short series on the fact that Jesus is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. And there are dozens of scriptures in the Old Testament that point forward to the fact that that Jesus would be born and that he would be the promised Messiah. So the scriptures themselves testified that Jesus is the Christ. And it also testified that this Messiah would be God also, deity, eternal father, prince of peace, reign forever. So you have the words of Jesus telling them directly who he is. You have the words of John the Baptist who was the forerunner of Jesus and prepared them ahead of time for the fact that this one who would come would be one that John would not even be worthy of unstrapping the thong of his sandal. And that John also said, again, this is the son of God. This is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's the son of God and the Messiah. You had the father's works. You have the Father himself, and now you have the Scripture. We now have five different kinds of witness to the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. But he's not done. Look at chapter 5, verse 46 now. 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he, Moses, wrote about me. 
of course, the Jews, the Pharisees, the scribes, the high priests, they, they revered Moses and Moses' writing. If there's one thing that they would stick to, it's the Torah. It's the first five books of the Old Testament written by Moses. So Jesus is going to Moses also, another witness, and says, listen, if you, believe, if you would believe Moses, you'd believe me because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, how you believe my words? And, he's, and, and, and he, he, he goes to that place each and every time he introduces a witness by saying, I'm telling you all these witnesses, even though I can see that you don't believe these witnesses. You know, he said, he said, for example, in verse 38, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. He says, the father himself witnesses to me. You don't believe him. The scriptures witness to me. But look at verse 40. You're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Moses wrote about me, but notice in verse 47. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In fact, the only place really that he doesn't say anything negative is in verse 36 when he talks about the works. See, everything else were, were words, declarations, even though, yes, they were the Father's words, they were the Baptist words, they were the scriptures, they were the words of Moses. But the one thing that, that was different in all the different witnesses that Jesus provides here in chapter 5 are the works of the Father. And as we're going to see, as we've already seen, because we read the passage, that's, that's the place he's going to go to last in his, his ongoing debate, argument with the Jewish leaders. So they were unwilling at this time, after he healed the man, the man who was lame for 38 years, despite all of these witnesses, they refused to believe in him. As a matter of fact, they refused to even consider the fact that these witnesses were telling them that Jesus is who he says he is, the Christ, the Son of God. So now he will appeal to them one last time. See, this is it. When, when you look at the Gospel of John and you see all the different interactions that Jesus had with the Jewish leaders, with the Pharisees, with the priests and so forth, this will be the last time that he will enter into a discussion with them. This is their last opportunity to believe in him. They're, now, it's not other Jews because in chapter 11, He's going to perform the amazing miracle, his greatest, other than the resurrection, of raising Lazarus from the dead four days after he died when he was in the tomb. Many would believe in him on that basis. In fact, here at the end of chapter 10, even before the miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead, Jesus is going to go on the other side of the Jordan River, which is very symbolic. But there, there will be many that would come to him and believe in him. So it's, I'm not saying that nobody else would believe in him after this point. But I am saying that this was the last opportunity that the Jewish leadership had to believe in him. As we're going to see, that is very, very, very significant. Tragic and very significant for the big picture about the nation of Israel. So now he will appeal to them one last time. And once again, as he did at the beginning... Of their argument with him in chapter 5, he's going to appeal to his works. He says to them, basically saying, I am willing to let the truth about who I am stand or fall on the basis of my works. 
And it's a very simple test. Are my works from the Father or not? What happened? The Jews, look at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? One of the reasons that Jesus appeals to his works at the end is because if you look at the Jewish leadership and, and their, their response to him, really, there were the only place where at least some of the leaders had some inclination that maybe he is who he says he is was on the basis of his works. You know, if you remember back in chapter nine, there was a division. This is in the context of Jesus healing the man born blind. And some of them were saying he can't have a demon in him because a demon couldn't possibly heal a blind man. That was the leaders. It was really the only time we had an indication that that the leaders might be swayed and they would have been swayed if that really was going on by his works. So he's appealing to his works at the end, the last opportunity for the leadership of the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, to believe in him, to receive him as their Messiah. Again, verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? I want you to note carefully the words of Jesus, the first, the first things that he said. Notice he said, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? When Jesus refers to many good works from the Father, these are much more than simply his miracles. It's important to understand that. Because, in fact, to this point, in the Gospel of John, Jesus, John has recorded just two miracles that Jesus performed in Judea. All the other miracles so far he has performed in Galilee. The wedding feast at Cana was in Galilee. He fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish in Galilee. This is only two. The healing of the man born blind and giving them and, and healing the lame man. Those are the two miracles that John records. Now, now also, you know, in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they were primarily documenting his ministry in the north, in Galilee. Okay, so it would be to John that we would come to say, whoa, the miracles that Jesus performed in the south, in Judea. John only records two of those. Doesn't mean that's all there were. But it gives you an indication that when Jesus says many good works, he's talking about far more than simply his miracles. Why? Because the good works to which Jesus refers here consists not only of his miracles, but also of every, listen to this now, every other thing he did in obedience to the Father's will. See, all of that collectively testified to who he was. It wasn't simply the miracles. It was everything that he did. Remember, he was doing in obedience to the Father. In other words, all of his works, far beyond his miracles, attested to the fact that he was from the Father, that the Father sent him, that indeed he is the Son of God and the promised Messiah. All right, so let's keep going. Verse 33. Because it's interesting, you know, they, they administered the justice, the punishment, or tried to first. 
And then they pronounced the charge. They had things backwards when it comes to justice. You see, the way justice is supposed to work is the charges are supposed to be introduced. Then there's a hearing out of both sides, and then there's a verdict. Not so with the mob here, with the Jewish leaders. They went right to the punishment. And then afterwards, they explained what the charges were. Look at John chapter 10 again. I mean, John chapter 10, 33. Here's the charge. The Jews answered him. For a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Hmm. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. In other words, they're saying, we're sure you're just a man. And, and you're just a you're mere man, and yet you're the one who is making making out to be that you're God. It's all coming from you. It's your, You've initiated this falsehood, this lie that you're God. Well, of course, none of what they said there is true. First of all, Jesus is more than a man. He is the word made flesh. He is God in the flesh. Jesus is God as well as man. That's just a fact. But not only that, he never made himself out to be God. Never made himself out in that sense to be anything. He was God. You know, it's very similar to people who um, mischaracterize the gospel as you must make Jesus Lord of your life. Well, you can't make Jesus anything. He is who he is. The same thing here. He wasn't making himself out. He wasn't making a claim, you know, I, I am God because I've told you so. He is God. And as we've seen, there are many witnesses. And he would say, even with respect to his own words, he says, you don't have to believe these. All right. I get it. You know, but there should be more than one witness to any to any fact. And so I'm giving you others as well, like my father's words, my father's works. But here at the end, this last interaction between him and the Jewish leadership, he is no longer going to make his stand on the basis of his words alone. He's not going to do that any longer. He's seen that. He's done that. And that never worked with the Jews. It hadn't worked until now. It never would work. And he was convinced. So, so in other words, they made a charge, a charge of words. He is going to answer that charge with what he has to say. But he knows that that part of the interaction will have no effect on them. So he's not doing what he says next to convince them that he is God. What he is going to do is give, give, them, a, give them a chance to reflect on how wrong they were in what they said. And therefore, there would hopefully be an opening to his real appeal this time, which was going to be to his works. His final appeal to the Jews will be his works, that they are the works of God. He can't go anywhere else with these people. I mean, I mean, if they're not going to face the fact that their God, the God of the Bible, Jehovah Elohim, has performed these works, then there's nowhere else that he can go with these people. It's not to say that the works are the best witness, because the best witness is the words of Jesus Christ himself, the words of the gospel. But because it's clear that they're never going to believe on the basis of his words or the words of Moses or the testimony of his father or the testimony of John the Baptist, his last stand, as it were, will be to his works. The fact that they are the works of God.
This is it for them. Now, that said, he is about to respond to their charge. They've accused him of blasphemy because he said he was the son of the father, God. He did say he was the son of God. He's going to respond to that, okay? but not in the hopes of convincing them. It's only really in order to keep them at bay, to kind of push them back, get them to, get them to realize that their words didn't make any sense. If they're back on their heels long enough for him to do what? Appeal to his works one more time. That's his only purpose and what he's about to say. Let's read what he's about to say. John 10, 34 to 35. Jesus answered them. Now, they were probably expecting him to declare once again that he is the son of God. But he doesn't do that. What does he do? Has it not been written in your law? I said you are God's. Now, when he says your law, he is not saying that it's not his law. What he is saying is that in your very law that you revere, isn't it true that it says, I said, you are God's talking to human beings? We're going to see in a minute. That's a quotation. I said, you are God's. In a minute, we're going to go to that passage in the Old Testament. Let me continue reading. If he, God, called them, we'll see who them are in a minute, God's, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him, he's talking about himself now, whom the Father, God, sanctified and sent into the world with a message, with a mission? Are you saying that the one that the Father sanctified, a unique setting apart, sent into the world for a purpose, that you, are, that you this one who was sent into the world by God, the Father, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. In other words, the fact that, they, that the fact that he said, I am the son of God can be can be backed up and put against and balanced by the fact that God has already told human beings, other human beings, that that they are gods. So he's, they have no basis if they're, if they're appealing to the scriptures, they have no basis in condemning him. And, and stoning him on the basis of his words, even though Jesus here is not trying to convince them that he's God on the basis of his words. He is merely want, wants to give them a pushback so that they're no longer issuing that charge. And now they can be open. At least they have an opportunity to be open to his final plea. Now, in verse 34, when Jesus says, has it not been written in your law? I said, you are God's. He is citing Psalm 82.6. So if you could turn there. Turn to Psalm 82.6. I want to point out something interesting. Well, I find it interesting. It's useful to understand how Jesus used the terminology. You know, he said, has it not been written in your law? I said you are God's. He says the law and he goes to the Psalms. So what is that telling us? It's telling us that when Jesus used the word law, he, he used it not only to talk about the first five books of the Bible, but also the Psalms, at least. OK, he also, by the way, would say the Psalms and the pro- I mean, the law and the prophets very often, you know, not so much here in the Gospel of John, but in the other Gospels, he would use that expression to mean the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets. He did usually make a distinction 
between the law, again, which for him clearly included at the very least the first five books, the Torah, Mosaic, the law of Moses, and the wisdom books, okay, which would be Job and, and Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and so on. Okay, but in any event, he is now citing Psalm 82.6. Notice what it, what is said here. I, the Lord is speaking. I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Clearly, the, the, the Lord, Yahweh, Elo, Jehovah Elohim, talking to human beings, is saying, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High, which is exactly what Jesus said he is. Now, I'm not saying that these people were divine like he is, but I am saying that they had no basis in charging him with blasphemy, given that God himself had said this about other human beings. Now, from the context of, of Psalm 82 and verses 1 and 2, we learn who. You know, you might say, well, who is he talking about in verse 6? Who's he addressing when he says, you are gods? All of you are sons of the Most High. Well, in context, the Lord this is the Old Testament, Yahweh, Elohim actually is used here. He is speaking to rulers and judges in Israel. That's who he's addressed, the Lord. Yahweh, Jehovah Elohim, is talking to the rulers and the judges in Israel. He is telling them they are gods, they are gods, and they are sons of the Most High, all of them. Why would he say something like that? Well, the fact of the matter is that who were these people? Well, they were they were called, they were nominated, they were they were sanctified, set apart by the Lord to perform the, 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 the functions of government and justice. And and since the nation of Israel was a theocracy, they were ruling in the place of God, if that makes sense. That God said, listen, I'm going to rule the people, but I'm going to rule them through the rulers. And also the judges administrate, were supposed to administer the justice according to God's principles of justice. There again, they were functioning in an activity that was really reserved for God, but he was allowing men to, to, to do judge the people, the Lord's people in Israel. So... Here in Psalm 82.6, he refers again to the rulers and the judges as gods. I want to tell you the Greek word he uses, I mean the Hebrew word that he uses here. It's Elohim. And it's interesting, we see this in Psalm 82, but it's true in other places as well, that this word Elohim can refer not only to God, but to rulers and judges, human beings that have been ordained and given a calling by the, by the Lord himself. Now, according to the Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew lexicon, just to say this is not just me, okay, this word can be used either as divine representatives or as reflecting divine majesty and power. The Lord calls gods those who are either his representatives or reflect his majesty and power. In other words, rulers reflect his power and his majesty. Rulers are representatives of God, but judges are also. They're, they're, they're taking the place that God has given them, and therefore they, God 
allows them to take his name in that sense to perform the office that he's been that, that these people have been given by the Lord. So, bottom line, God calls other people gods. He does it on the basis of the fact that they're representing him, that they're a reflection or they ought to be a reflection of his majesty and his power. Now, this isn't the only place, by the way, as you can infer from the fact that the lexicon says this is done many times. This isn't the only place here in Psalm 82, 6. Not the only place where the Lord refers to men as gods. As Elohim, I'd like you to turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 4, verse 16. Elohim. I know you've heard the expression, Jehovah Elohim. These are two names for God. Jehovah, or Yahweh, is his personal name. Personal name. For personal relationships between him and his people. Elohim points to his functions and his character. So Elohim refers to God as all-powerful, as sovereign, and so forth. The essence of God. And it's interesting because the essence of God is shared, as we know from the revelation of the New Testament, that essence, the Elohim, is shared with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are one in essence. They are one Elohim. On the other hand, the personal name Yahweh is is used for the persons and represents the persons, the three persons of the Trinity, who are separate people with one essence. So, so we see that that we see basically the Trinity represented in the title Jehovah Elohim. So, Exodus four sixteen context: Moses and Aaron, the Lord is sending them to again bear His words, reveal His law, and He's speaking to Moses now. Look what He says to Moses, Exodus four sixteen. Moreover. He shall speak for you to the people. Moreover, Aaron shall speak for you, Moses, to the people. See, Moses said, I'm tongue-tied. I'm not a good speaker. The Lord says, stop bickering and trying to resent, resist what I want you to do. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take Aaron. And he, he can speak. He'll speak for you if you don't want to speak directly to the people. And he, Aaron will be as a mouth for you, Moses. And notice the next statement. And you will be as God to him. What's he saying? He's saying the word of God is going to be revealed to Moses, and then Moses is going to tell Aaron what to speak. And so in that sense, Moses is a representative of God. Aaron is hearing the word of God indirectly, as it were, through Moses. Therefore, in that place, Moses is functioning in the place of God in order to reveal what he does reveal to Aaron. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God, Moses, to him. So Psalm 82 is not the only place where the Lord refers to men as gods, using the title Elohim. Now I want you to think about Moses and Aaron for a minute. Isn't it true that they were given a unique divine commission from the Lord? Of course they were. Now, Aaron was was the first priest. Um, his, his descendants would all be of the priestly <coughs> tribe, or came from the priestly tribe. 
Aaron was given a special divine commission. Here he's also given a divine commission to speak on behalf of Moses. <laughs> Moses, of course, had a credible divine commission. He was the one who led the Lord's people out of Egypt. He was the one who was the ruler over the people when they were in the wilderness. He was also the one that received the words of God directly from the Lord up on, on, on the mountain, Mount Sinai. He got the Ten Commandments. He got a lot of other things directly from God. So he had a unique commission. He was one to whom the word of God came. And in that respect, it is, it is a divine thing. It is directly from God. Both Moses and Aaron were given a divine commission from the Lord. The same thing was true about the rulers in Psalm 82.6. By the way, there's something interesting about the fact that Jesus had selected this scripture, Psalm 82.6, because it was talking about rulers and judges. Now let's think about who Jesus is talking to in the Gospel of John chapter 10. His audience was rulers and judges. Interesting. It was very ironic here. Right? He was saying that, you know what, the rulers and leaders at the time, the Psalm wrote, psalmist wrote Psalm 82, they were, they were given a divine commission. Moses and Aaron, whom God also called Moses God, they were given a special divine commission from the Lord. And guess what? The Pharisees and the priests also were functioning or should have been functioning in the place of God, and they weren't. And so he's, he's, he's pushing them back even more when he uses this particular scripture. Jesus always told and selected his scriptures very carefully. But not only that, but Jesus himself, of course, received the greatest, the unique divine commission from the Father. Look at verse 36. Go to verse 36 now of John chapter 10. Rulers and judges received a divine commission. Moses and Aaron received a divine commission. The rulers and judges of Jesus' day had a divine commission. Of course, they failed in that. They, re they refused to operate in that which they had been given as an office, as a responsibility. Yes? Oh, no, you're sharing Oh, that's unfortunate. I wonder why. Hey, folks, my sharing is stopped on Skype, so I'm going to try to redo that. Hmm. Yes, it did. All right, I should be back. Hopefully. Excellent. Okay. Okay, so... Jesus received a unique divine commission from the Father. Look at John chapter 10, verse 36. Do you say of him, Jesus talking about himself, whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? After you see in your own scriptures that Moses and Aaron were given a divine commission and the Lord said that Moses would be his God, after Psalm 82, 6, where the rulers and judges of that day, the Lord said, you are gods, you are sons of the Most High. It's illogical, therefore, 
to say that Jesus, whom the Father set apart in a very special way and was given the most unique commission of all, it defied logic even. It would be illogical to say he was blaspheming because he also said he is the Son of God. Now, again, we know that when he said that, it was literally true. But that's not what he's trying to get across here. He's really trying to get across the fact that these guys were blind, hypocritical, and they were totally dominated by their anger and resentment of the Lord. He's trying to get them to at least see that in their own scriptures. Because the Father set him apart and sent him into the world with a unique commission, never before, never since given to anybody, the Lord is the Savior of the world. That's that the Lord commissioned him, the Father commissioned him for that. It was unique divine commission. The Father set him apart to be the one who would be the Savior, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. He was sent for that purpose, sent by the Father for that purpose. Everything he did pointed in direction of him fulfilling that purpose. Everything that he said, everything that he did, he only did in obedience to the Father. The Father had set him apart and had sent him into the world to be the Savior of the world. I'd like you to look at John chapter 6 now, verse 39. Go back to John chapter 6, verse 39. If there's one thing that Jesus said again and again, especially to the, to the Jewish leaders, it was that he had been sent by the Father. He had been sent by God. And, and he did it always in the context of who he was. I am the one sent by God. I do nothing on my own initiative. I only do the things that the one who sent me has told me to do, has shown me, has, that he's doing himself. Look at John chapter 6, verse 39. What were those things? What was the purpose of the works that the Father had given him to perform? What was the purpose of, of how God had sent him into the world? What is the will of God for Jesus and this unique commission, this unique ministry? Notice verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, the Father who sent him, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. We are right back to what we saw in last week's, two weeks ago now, message, eternal security. He is saying that my mission, the will of him who sent me, was that I would lose nothing that the, of, of whom the Father has given to me, but will raise it up on the last day. He is saying that I am the Savior. I have come, and those who believe in me, though the Father has given me, are secure in my arms and hands and the secure of the hands of the Father forever. That's the end game. That, that, that's when that's it, the father and the son. Father said, you're going to go. There will be those who believe in you. They will be secure forever in your hands and in mine. I will lose nothing, Jesus said, but raise it up on the last day. Triumphant victory for those who believe in Christ. Verse 40. But this is the will of my father. Notice that everyone who beholds the son and simply believes in him will have eternal life. He came that they may have life and have it abundantly. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever simply believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. 
That was the objective of the mission. That was why the Father set Jesus apart. That was why he sent him into the world, so that there would be many who would hear the gospel, believe in him, and receive eternal life and never lose it. That's a unique commission. So if if anybody had the right, now this is just looking at it from the Old Testament scriptures, if anybody ever had the right to call himself the Son of God, clearly it was Jesus. And again, we're talking about the title still. We now know from Revelation, we know from the first chapter of the Gospel of John, that what Jesus said is literally, absolutely, and fully true. The Word, the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So at every level, if you want to look at it that way, both at the surface level that even the Pharisees and uh, and the teachers and the elders and the Priests ought to have understood at that level, the scriptural level, he certainly fulfilled what it was what it would take to have the title of Son of God. But not only that, at the deeper level, when it comes to the essence of Elohim, he also fulfilled that, of course. He is God in the flesh. Always have to understand in the Gospel of John who the audience is. I mean, that's a principle throughout the Bible. All right. Always look at who the audience is that is that is being addressed in whatever scripture you're, you're reading, you're studying, you're trying to understand. That will tell you why Jesus puts things the way that he does. Okay, And here he says again, verse 40, for this is the will of my father that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. By the way. Who who is it that can raise people up from the dead on the last day? Can Moses do it? No. Only God can do it. Isaiah couldn't do it. Nobody could do it except God. I point that out because even back in chapter 5, chapter 6, Jesus was saying the things and doing the things that made it clear that he actually is God. Okay, let's go back now to our passage this morning to chapter 10, verse 5. 37. Chapter 10, verse 37. As we wrapped up our message this morning, and we'll soon prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So again, the stage has been set. This is the last interaction Jesus will have directly with the Pharisees and the and the priests, the leaders. The, the governmental rulers of the nation of Israel. This is it. This is his final appeal to them. After this, he's done with them. They'll be done with him also as well, of course. Look at John ten thirty seven. If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. What a bold statement to make when you think about it. He's actually saying, I'm going to give you something, a criteria, that if I don't meet it, I don't want you to believe in me. You know, it, it's akin to, you know, a politician saying, hey, listen, if you don't think that I'm going to do a good job in representing you, don't vote for me. Now, how many politicians do you ever hear say, don't vote for me? Well, it's the same thing here. He is, he, is, he is hanging his hat on the fact that he does the works of his father. If I don't do them, don't believe me. Flip it around. But if I do them, though you do not believe me clearly. You don't believe me at all. Believe the works. Believe the works. Start there. If you believe the works, 
meaning that you believe that these are works of God, then that opens the door for you to know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. The works alone ought to convince you that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. I and the Father are one. Okay, why? Because they're one in the works. And if they're one in their works, that means that Jesus is working the works of God and that, that his claim to be the son of God is true. So, they, so that all the other appeals have fallen on deaf ears. Now he's making one final one. He's saying, I'm going to push everything else aside. I'm going to say, just simply look at the works I have performed and ask yourself a question. Are those despite the fact that I healed on the Sabbath or the fact that I said things that offended you, I want you to just focus on one thing. I want you to focus on the works that I have performed. Are they of God or not? If I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works. Why? So that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm going to, I'm going to, Put it all on the shoulders of my works, but show that my works, believe those that they come from God, and then that will give you an opportunity. That should lead you to the so that, that you may know, by the way, little Greek, know is the aristets. It means that finally you open your eyes, and then he goes on and understand, come to understand. You see, it all rests on the works, and if, if, they, if they agree that the works are from God, then their eyes will be opened. They'll know the truth about Jesus and they'll come to understand what he's talking about when he says the father is in me and I am in the father. It gives them an opportunity to grow, as it were, in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father is in me and I am in the father. He's saying, examine my works. I am the Messiah. I am the son of God. And I stake that claim completely on the nature of my works meaning are they of God? If they're not the works of God the Father, he's saying you shouldn't believe in me. But if they are, if they are the works of God the Father, you need to believe them, the works. Start there. Now, they should have recognized, of course, that the words Jesus spoke were the words of God. But they refused that over and over again. But he didn't give up on them. I mean, this is one of the amazing things to observe in his interactions with these blind, angry, hostile, you know, ignorant in a sense of the things of God, people. In a minute, we're going to ask why, by the way. But he, he, he was going to give them another chance, another opportunity. He's going to do everything he possibly can to save them. By the way, that's who our God is, period. You know? Uh, nobody will have an excuse, okay, when it comes to the judgment of God, those who haven't believed in Christ, because this is the same God did the same things in the lives of these people, everything that he could in order to save them. So you should have recognized that the words Jesus spoke, they were the words of God, but they refused that. Surely, though, it's undeniable, Jesus is saying, that the works I do are the works of God after all. I gave the blind man his sight. That was unprecedented. Never before, never among all the prophets and great people of the Old Testament had anybody given a blind man his sight. And Isaiah said that this would be one of the signs of the Messiah, 
So that alone should have opened your eyes to the fact of who I am. I healed the lame man. But not only that, I forgave the woman caught in adultery. By the way, right they were right there, if you remember. They were the leaders of Pharisees were the ones that brought that woman into the midst of Jesus. So they knew that he had forgiven that woman. Okay, these, this is why I mean it's more than the miracles. It's all his works. He's saying, saying, think about just I'm giving you one opportunity to just think about it. Let it have its desired effect. My works. My works. What he's really saying, by the way, is are you so filled with hatred for me that you will turn your back on the very works of God? That's what he's saying. My works give you one last opportunity, one final opportunity to open your eyes, one final opportunity to see the power and the glory of God in Jesus. One more. Believe the works that I, you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Or as he would say to the, to, to the apostles in the upper room, he who has seen me has seen the Father. The works, he's giving them, pointing to them one final opportunity to see that. He who has seen me has seen the Father. You know, it's remarkable that Jesus has invested so much time, think of it, so much effort, so many words, so many works, so much personal risk in trying to convince these hostile, unbelieving, religious Jewish leaders to believe in him. And you got to ask the question, why? After all, there were many other people in Israel, right, that he could have done the same thing with. Why didn't this... In, in his ministry on earth, did he do that for those who were the hardest hearted, the ones who were the most resistant? Why did he, did he invest personal risk? He knew that they wanted to kill him. Why did he do so many works? Why did he spend so much time over many months, effort and so forth, trying to convince these particular people when they were hostile to him, when they refused to believe in him? There's only one explanation that really fits. And it's this. Jesus knew something about the importance of the leaders of the nation of Israel. And that is the whole, the fate of the entire nation was at stake here. The fate, look, there were many who did believe in Jesus Christ. Some received him, in other words. And yet we know that, that God sees what happened as the nation as a whole rejecting his son. Why is that? It's because the leaders represented before God the people. And so it was what they decided. It was how they responded to Jesus and his words and his works and the testimony of the other witnesses. That mattered when it came to the fate of the nation of Israel. It all came down to one question. Would the leaders receive Jesus as their Messiah? And now here we are, the end of chapter 10. It's their last chance to do it. It's the last chance really for the nation of Israel to turn to Jesus and accept him as their Messiah in, in, in the people of the leadership who had to do it in order for the nation to be seen as doing that. You know, John didn't leave us, the readers of the gospel, in any suspense about the answer to that question. Would they finally receive him as their Messiah? Because he gave the answer to that at the very beginning of this gospel. And as we close today, I'd like you to turn there. John chapter 1, verse 11. 
We call it the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, the prologue. And in fact, it, it provides the seed for every other part of this Gospel. You can come back and tie everything else that we see in the Gospel of John back to what we learned in the first 18 verses. And here's another example of that. We already know. If we've, if we've listened to John 1.11, we already know the answer. We already know by the time we get to chapter 10 and there's one last appeal to the nation, we know the response. Why? Look at verse 11. He came to his own, the Jewish nation, and those who were his own did not receive him. Did not receive him. One of the greatest tragedies that's ever befallen anybody in this world was that when the Messiah, the creator of the world, the one who wrote the entire Old Testament, the one who was the Lord that was always with them in the Old Testament, the Messiah that was promised, when he came in the flesh, they rejected him. <coughs> Same thing we see at the very end of chapter 10, 39, when we realize that what John had said has now become a reality. And we see that, and this will be our last verse this morning. Go to John chapter 10, verse 39. Jesus said, I know you don't believe me. Believe the works that they are from my Father. But will they? When he's done saying that, we get the answer. Look at John chapter 10, verse 39. Did they embrace him? No. John 10, 39. Therefore, because of his works and the rejection of them, they were seeking again to seize him. See, they, were, they never changed. They rejected him at every point. And he eluded their grasp. He eluded their grasp because once again, his hour had still not yet come. But unfortunately, their hour had passed. The disputes that we've seen from chapters 5 through 10 of the Gospel of John, the disputes between Jesus and the Jews, now come to a decisive end. The decisive in the sense that the fate of the nation has been set in stone. In chapter 11, Jesus would perform his greatest miracle, raising Lazarus from the dead. But by then, the foolish hearts of the chief priests and Pharisees would have gone completely dark. You, If we look at, and we'll see this, if we look at who they are, how they're represented from here forward, their hearts are completely dark. There's no opportunity any longer for them to believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, as their Messiah. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for leveling with us about the life and death seriousness of the words of the gospel, and in particular, the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that if, if a person doesn't believe that he's the Son of God, then there's no opportunity for them to be saved. Because if they don't believe he's the Son of God, then they don't believe that he is the one that they're Savior. They, don't, they can't understand the significance of the fact that he would die. He died as the Son of God that he was buried. The Son of God took flesh and actually was buried. And on the third day, you raised him from the dead so that whoever believes in him as God, as their Savior, will never perish but have eternal life. Father, we now, after having seen the significance 
of who Jesus is, we now have an opportunity to celebrate the thing that he did and accomplished to open the doors of salvation and give an opportunity to every person in the world to believe in him. We thank you, Father, for all you've provided in your word. And we ask now that the Holy Spirit would prepare our hearts to receive the truth that sets us free is represented by today's portion as, as pointing to the death and resurrection of your son. We ask in Jesus' name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Okay, at this time I would ask that you would prepare the communion elements so that we're ready. the end of chapter 10, we're going to see that after that final encounter with the Jewish leaders, Jesus left. He left Jerusalem and he crossed the Jordan River to the other side. It was the place where John the Baptist was baptizing. It was the beginning of the story. And he stayed there for a time and many came to him then and were saying, you know what? Even though John didn't perform any sign, everything John said about this man, Jesus, was true. One of the things that John said about Jesus is found in John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The word sin here is in the singular. This is sin itself. It's not talking here just about the personal sins that people commit. It's not talking simply about the flesh, which is a manifestation of sin in human bodies. It's talking about the whole thing at the source. The seat, the sin here is the seat of rebellion against God. And Jesus came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And how did Jesus take away the sin of the world? Very simply, he did it by dying on the cross. In Romans 8, verse 1, we read, there's no now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the governing power of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the governing power of sin. Sin as the rebellion against God and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the sinful flesh, God did. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was human. And as an offering for sin, singular, the thing, the rebellion. God the Father condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. That's how the Lamb of God took away the sin of the world. And what happened? Once God the Father had condemned sin in the flesh, done away with it as an obstacle to the human race, so that now the requirement of the law, the righteousness of the law, might be fulfilled in us believers in Jesus Christ who have been received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Where he became flesh, dwelt among us, God the Father gave his own son as an offering for sin, sin singular, 
an offering so that he would take away the seed of the rebellion against God. Jesus became the sin offering when he went to the cross. There at the cross, the Father condemned sin in the flesh. Sin singular, the seat of the rebellion against God. Sin in its entirety, which covered all individual sins and even the sinful flesh of all mankind. Our old man was crucified with Christ on the cross. God condemned it all in the body of Jesus on the cross. Jesus is the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. He took it away by becoming sin himself so that his father could condemn sin in his human flesh. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, therefore, we proclaim his death until he comes again. He, Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Everything John said about him is true. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing privilege of being able to be together and celebrate the death of your son. It seems odd that anybody would celebrate a death. But what you mean by that is that all that the death of the son made possible, accomplished, including condemning sin itself in his flesh, a remarkable, amazing aspect of the death of Christ. Father, we now ask that you would Empower us by the Holy Spirit to simply preach the most powerful words of all, the gospel message that your son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, went to the cross and died for the sin of the world and the sins of the world. That he was buried and you raised him from the dead on the third day so that whoever simply believes in this good news will never perish but have eternal life. We thank you, Father, for all your good gifts now. And we would just ask that we would be able to to preach the good message that sets people free. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.